Arthur Balfour and the team on the brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. This is weekly Monday appearance, the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron, who what follows as he does every week on the program. Dave Cameron endeavors this week to analyze all baseball of particular note. This week, the looming trade deadline, July 31st, 4 p.m., Teams are no longer able to make trades not without pa- first passing the, the relevant players through waivers. It's an important deadline for Major League Baseball. Uh, ahead of it, uh, some teams have already made deals. For example, Johnny Cueto has gone from Cincinnati to Kansas City. Scott Casimir from Oakland to Houston. Juan Uribe from Atlanta to New York. You know these things. Uh, we, uh, I ask further questions of Dave Cameron, whose expertise is analyzing baseball. For example, with regard to Johnny Cueto, how does the how does the acquisition for the Royals of a starting pitcher how does the how does that how does it affect that team which has been so good uh, with such a poor staff? What are the effects on that team, perhaps relative uh, to the average team? Besides those that have made, Dave Cameron also speculates on those that might be made over the course of the week. For example, Cole Hamels is still available as is perhaps a, a very uh, valuable player in uh, the Milwaukee Brewers center fielder, Carlos Gomez. We're talking brief about uh, perhaps a variation on the theme of dollar per win valuation uh, and, and consider perhaps a dollar per percentage point valuation in a team's playoff odds. This factors in the uh, the increased importance of marginal wins, etc. That's also, I think, uh, has some interest for, for listeners. And finally, Perhaps less interest in listeners, but very interesting, apparently, to Dave Cameron. Uh, in what follows, we're privy to uh, Cameron's thoughts on fish and its uh, gastronomic significance. I could buy the, you know, wild Alaskan salmon for $25 a pound, or I could buy, like, the frozen, uh, you know, not quite Alaskan, but Pacific salmon for, like, $15 a pound. It's Audio. It features Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Sounding good, sounding real good. Well, hooray for me! Yeah, yeah, it's all it's all coming up, Cameron, isn't it? Well, yeah, I might be coming down with a cold, which mm. would not be coming up, Cameron. No, it wouldn't. Uh, not the worst case scenario, though, is it? Right, I could have cancer again. Whoa, yeah, yeah, you but could. I don't, which is good news. You don't, yeah. Actually, yeah. Uh, last night, I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. There is a popular American comedian named Tig Notaro. Never heard of him. It's a, it's a woman. Oh, never heard of her. So you definitely haven't heard of her. <laughs> you're, you're showing and telling at the same time. The, so she uh, just has like one name, like Pele? Well, no. Her first name is Tig. It's short for Matilda. And somehow it became a childhood nickname. And then her last huh? name is Nataro. Anyway, oh, okay. uh, <clears throat> she had a, like a series of awful events um, in her life when she, she – first of all, she developed a condition uh, known as C. diff. Yeah, I know what C. diff is. You do know what C. diff is? Yeah, I had it for a little while. No, you didn't. Yeah, I was in the hospital, and you get lots of crap when you're in the hospital. You had it, wait, you had it when you were being treated for cancer? Yeah. Oh, your that's immune, your, your immune system basically just goes on strike, and so you get all kinds of stuff. Right, and and I guess what was C. Well, you would know better than me, uh, but what, you're like, your bowels inflame, essentially. Your intestines, yeah, your right. insides get, your insides are unhappy. Yeah, your pee gets super smelly. It's like you ate all the asparagus in the world. Like you had every stock of asparagus there could ever possibly be. Uh, yeah. And uh, that's that's not – see, that's good. You We have some insider information. Well, she had C. diff, 
And she was just like, she didn't, first of all, it was undiagnosed because she just thought it was a cold, but then it developed into something much worse. She had C. diff. And then a week after she got out of the hospital, uh, her mom died in like a freak accident. Like her mom like fell over and hit, hit her head, but then she just thought she was fine. But then uh, when she, after she went to bed and didn't wake up the next day. And then uh, she went to go visit her mom and went to the funeral and everything. And then like a week after that, she was diagnosed with a bilateral breast cancer. Wow. Yeah. How many people do you think are still listening to this podcast? No, I, this well, is this well, is like the first ten minutes of Up. What's Up? Up? Up, the movie? You don't remember oh, the, oh, yeah, the, uh, yeah, the right. animated. Yeah. yeah, like the first ten minutes of that were like the saddest thing ever. This podcast is like that. Oh, I don't – but I think you got to embrace the, those sorts of things, right? You don't find them compelling at all? No, I mean, I, I loved Up. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. But the first ten minutes were, like, super sad. And yeah. that's kind of like I'm, I'm using it as a uh, yeah, comparison. Yeah, so fine. But anyway, my, what, I forget what the point was. Oh, yeah, but she – well, anyway, she, there's a documentary about uh, the process that she went through. And I don't know if it helps as a survivor to hear other people's stories. It does seem as though it, it – uh, you know, there's something there. You say, oh, you know, not everyone goes through what I through. It's nice to hear uh, the tale of someone else who's had a similar experience. Okay, maybe. I mean, I can see the psychological yeah. from that perspective. But yeah. I, I generally like just root for people to not get cancer. So no, I'm not like, yeah. oh, good. Look at all these people who also had cancer. I feel better that I had it. Right. Not that. Not yeah. Not better, Cameron. You, you know. You know. You're proving to. You're proving difficult, Cameron. Uh, this is uh, the usual thing. Yeah. It's not. Uh, let's see. Uh, here's a question. Here's a question with regard to the Johnny Cueto trade, which was completed this weekend. Yesterday, yeah. Okay, Sunday. Well, right. I shouldn't say yesterday because who knows when you're going to post this. Who knows, yeah. Uh, Johnny Cueto, of course, uh, was one of – along with Cole Hamels, they were probably the premier targets in terms of available starting pitchers for trades, Yes. Yeah, unless the Tigers make David Price available, but that's un, unknown at this point. Right, right. And so we'll say best and most likely to be traded. Yeah, right. Com- uh, if Price is not put on the blocks, then Cueto and, and Kaz- or Cueto and Hamels were one, two on I think most teams. Uh, guy I'd like to have in my playoff rotation wish list. Right. Um, so, so the interest in starting pitchers at the uh, deadline is always interesting, and I, I think you you've discussed this before about what we might be looking at in terms of valuations right like the uh the essentially the 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 millions of dollars the teams appear willing to pay per win seem to increase pretty considerably at the trade deadline yeah i think last year you know i did some back of the envelope calculations so i'm not going to say like these are definitive and this is absolutely you know this was like a one-year study with some ballparking so you know uh with those caveats it looked like the price of a win at the deadline was something like twice what it was the previous offseason um, I, would, I think that makes sense. I mean, right? So supply is extremely constricted. Maybe less so this year than we expected it to be, but supply is definitely constricted, uh, and demand is not as constricted. I mean, some teams are certainly not buyers anymore, but a lot of the teams that aren't buyers at the deadline weren't buyers this winter either. I mean, you know, like the Phillies weren't loading up on veteran uh, all stars this winter, and they're not loading up on them now. So. Um, I think, you know, we would expect the price to be higher, uh, and, you know, paying double considering you have more information and you kind of have a better understanding of your, how your season's going, um, uh, might make some sense. Right. And if you, if you do think that those wins are the difference between, uh, qualifying and not qualifying for the, the postseason, then they're quite valuable. Right. I mean, it comes down to kind of quantity versus quality, right? Like in the offseason, you're buying maybe more overall wins, but the marginal value of those wins is less certain. So if you're going to say, I'm going to buy a two-win player in the winter, 
maybe that only moves your playoff odds by a couple of points because you don't, you know, heading into the season, you don't really know how your guys are going to do. You don't know what other teams are going to do. Uh, maybe, you know, if you're a good team, you go from 20 to 25% odds to win your division if you make like a really significant, uh, you know, impactful acquisition. But at the deadline, when you're like, you're maybe only fighting one or two other teams and you kind of know like, hey, this really could come down to a win here or there, you might, you're getting less wins overall. I mean, Johnny Cueto is probably only going to add a win, a win and a half to the Royals the rest of the season. Uh, but that win, win and a half make it almost impossible for the Twins and Tigers to catch them now. You know, it, you, you bring up an interesting point there, and I don't even know if you're aware of it. You probably are. Um, we discuss frequently, we discuss these things in terms of paying for wins. Teams are paying for wins. You said the wins, of course, at the, uh, you know, in midseason are different than the mids in the, in the previous, you know, the preseason. Uh, but it, it, it makes a little bit more sense, or it could, if you think about it as paying for Paying for uh, um, a, like you know a, a percentage point, an X percentage point bump in the playoff odds. Yeah, I think that's what teams are really doing. I mean, so we use wins kind of as the denominator of currency. Uh, but I think if we were really to sit down and say, what do teams act their decision making actually? What does it look like? A better model would be dollars per percentage uh, playoff odd, uh, or maybe even World Series odds. Uh, um, kind of a factor based on that instead of on wins. Because you're going to look at it and say, you know, a four-win player to the 2015 Phillies didn't mean anything. Like, uh, that moved the needle not at all. So they didn't pay for a four-win player last winter, even though those wins are, you know, four wins or four wins, theoretically. But for them, it didn't. It just didn't matter. So, you know, they weren't in the market for it, where, you know, four wins to a bubble contender is a huge deal, and you know, especially if you're in that sweet spot on the win curve, kind of in that mid-80s to low-90s area. You're going to pay a huge premium for that. So... Teams certainly aren't just indiscriminately buying wins without context of of how much that moves their playoff needle. Right, and yeah, and that's interesting because so what's the so right now like the highest we're seeing for playoff odds is somewhere like the ten to fifteen percent range for World Series, I should say. Yeah, I think right. Yeah, I think at some points earlier in the year we had like maybe the Dodgers up at like eighteen percent or the Nationals at like nineteen percent or something. But the, you know, I think those are uh, have come down a good amount and probably should have. Uh, and I think, right, it, it, the best team in baseball with the easiest path to the World Series is probably still less than a one in five chance of winning the World Series. Okay, yeah. And so, oh, that's actually, yeah, so that's a good point. So, so in fact, the, the, it does not appear as though at this moment that the range, what has, what has changed? Has the range changed since the beginning of the season? Because you just said that maybe it's actually for the, for the, teams that are most well positioned, it's actually, in some cases, it's gone down. I mean, it's gone down for the Nats. Uh, the Dodgers are at like 17. So it doesn't seem as though the range has changed that much, except for maybe there are a couple more teams that have zeros. Right. So certainly the bottom end has, uh, you know, bottomed out. I think a few of the teams that we expected, uh, looking at it now, we had the, I think the Nationals at 17% World Series odds before the season started, because we thought they were a 95 win team over the course of the season, and then like everyone on their team got hurt. Uh, so they haven't played like a 95 win team to this point and their odds of winning the division have gone down. So therefore their odds of winning the World Series have gone down. I think, uh, you know, preseason, if everyone had stayed healthy and the Nationals hadn't had to, you know, uh, play Clint Robinson and Matt Dead Decker as much as they had, like that's probably not a terrible estimate for the best team in baseball mm-hmm. in a division as easy as, uh, the at least should have been for them to win uh, and probably still will be as easy for them to win. It's just things haven't gone their way. Well, a generic, if you, right, a generic win percentage for a team that has already qualified for the divisional series, that's what, 12.5%, right? 
Yeah, right. If everyone was equal. Yeah. Right. But that doesn't. Yeah. Uh, so I guess by so I, when you come across a, a club that has better something better than that, what you're looking at is not only you know more or less a guarantee of them winning the divisional series, but uh, something beyond that, I guess. Right, and I think that's what the motivation for the Royals was, right? The Royals basically have the AL Central already wrapped up. It's not 100% guaranteed. I mean, we've seen weird things happen before. The Mets blew a huge lead not that long ago. Uh, you know, uh, the Red Sox had their epic collapse. Uh, so teams can blow large leads late in the season. It's not uh, a given that the Royals will win the AL Central, but it's pretty close. I mean, if you were going to say what's the safest bet in baseball, like St. Louis making the playoffs and Kansas City winning their division are, are right up there, uh, especially now that the Royals added Johnny Cueto. Um, so they absolutely are acquiring him for October. Like, they, you know, they didn't really need him for the rest of the season. This is all about optimizing their roster for the playoffs. Right, and it's interesting you mentioned it because the uh, the last couple of uh, postseasons recently have taught us, and certainly uh, the Royals run uh, you know, um, this last year. Uh, you know, despite the fact that they had James Shields, James Shields was not particularly effective during the during the postseason, uh, but their bullpen was fantastic. Bullpens are very important during. Um, uh, during postseason play, because uh, you can rely on them more heavily. Uh, the, the, and as you've noted already, the, the Royals, more than any other team, are you know have the um, are likely to make the divisional series. Um, so what what was it? What is it? What are the advantages for the Royals to acquiring Cueto, even though we know that starting pitchers maybe do not have the same sort of value in the postseason than they might during the regular season? Yeah, I mean, so I think that that's somewhat true and somewhat not true. So I think your top one to three, especially your one and two, but your top three starters have more value in the regular, in the postseason than they do in the regular season because you can dump the back end of your rotation and you can accumulate more innings for your top few starters. The, you know, Dodgers and Yankees have done this, uh, the last few years with like Clayton Kershaw and, you know, the Yankees, I think, when they, um, had Andy Pettit and Roger Clemens and uh, a few of those guys and Mariano Rivera, they gave like, you know, 60% of their innings or 70% of their innings to like four pitchers throughout the entire playoffs. You can't do that in the regular season. So a guy like Cueto, you can say, I'm maybe penciling him in for 14 innings in the first round of the division series. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I only expect that series to maybe go uh, 36 innings or something, right? So we're looking at like 40% of the innings pitched by Royals pitchers could be thrown by Johnny Cueto uh, in the first round. Obviously, uh, you'd expect him to throw something like 15% in the regular season. So Cueto, I think, certainly more valuable in the postseason than he is in the regular season. Um, and I think there's probably a domino effect here, right? Like the rest of the Royals rotation is... Awful. Like they will have, even with Cueto, maybe one of the worst rotations of any playoff team in baseball. They're going to make the playoffs because everything else they have is great. Uh, but the rotation stinks. And if you went into the the playoffs with, you know, uh, Edinson Volquez and a whole lot of uh, hopes and prayers of guys behind him as your playoff rotation, you were probably going to be going to like Wade Davis and Kelvin Herrero super early and super often just to get out of the first round. Where now you can say, you know what, if I think Cueto can give me seven innings twice in the first round, maybe I can ease off my bullpen guys in those two games and, you know, give Herrera a day off here, give Davis a day off there. Hopefully, you know, just win a blowout on uh, one game and, you know, I can throw the mop-up guys and really save my bullpen for the League Championship Series and the World Series so that by the time the final rounds come around, those guys haven't thrown, you know, 20 innings in the last two weeks. Yeah, that is uh, that is peculiar, uh, the uh, the arrangement. How did, how did this happen with the – this is – Dumb. It's a dumb question. But how did it happen that the Royals, uh, first of all, ended the season with this rotation, and second of all, succeeded so well, dis- in, you know, despite it? 
Well, their defense is amazing, so it kind of gives them less of a reason to need really good pitching when you have the best defense in baseball. So I think they looked at it and said, you know, cool, we have Lorenzo Cain and Jared Dyson and uh, Alex Gordon and, uh, you know, Alcides Escobar and Mike Moustakis and Eric Cosmer. We have these guys that can really go get the ball. So why pay a premium for strikeouts? We can get pitch-to-contact guys who will, you know, look pretty good in front of our defense because they're so good. So they got Chris Young and Jeremy Guthrie, who, you know, they got him obviously before they had a great defense, but they kept him around. They didn't replace him in the rotation when they probably should have. Uh, and, you know, they pulled Joe Blanton uh, back on a minor league contract. They basically went for guys who throw the ball over the plate and kind of hope their defenders pick it up and, and help them out. Uh, and when you have the best defense in baseball, it's not a terrible strategy. Um you know, and I think there's probably some disincentives to getting a, you know, a front line starting strikeout guy, uh, when you have someone who's, um, or when you have, you know, a defense like the Royals do. And I think this is one of the interesting questions about Cueto's fit on the Royals. I think it's, you know, it made sense for them to acquire him, but he's already a guy who ran a very low BABIP on his own and induced a lot of weak contact. He gets a lot of infield flies. Like historically, Cueto's a guy who didn't need a great defense behind him. It'll be interesting to see uh, if you combine the Royals' defense with Cueto, if he runs like a 220 BABIP the rest of the season or 230 or something absurdly low, or if it turns out that like maybe it's just kind of uh, extraneous and he didn't actually need all these great defenders because he's just getting this really you know soft contact that anyone could pick up and field. Although he has had uh, pr- pretty good defenses in Cincinnati the last couple of years, right? Sure, yeah. Billy Hamilton's a, a studly center fielder, and the Reds have you know prioritized uh, pretty good defenders around the field, not as good as the Royals' defense, but mm-hmm. yeah. I, mean, I think that we look at Cueto's like 237 BABIP since the start of 2013. Part of that is the Reds' defense, not all of it, but part of it. Uh, now you uh, you wrote you published also on Sunday the uh, some predictions regarding uh, which which players might uh, go to which teams at the deadline. Uh, you have uh, Marlon Byrd and Dan Heron also going to these same uh, Kansas City Royals. And what what is the sort of uh, justification there? Well, I think the Bird thing's probably not happening now that the Royals and Reds made a trade and Marlon Bird wasn't included in it. So, uh, you know, from my perspective, the Royals could really use another outfielder. Alex Rios was a colossal mistake this winter, and then just a total waste of $11 million. And so uh, with Alex Gordon Hurt, they really have one good outfielder right now. I like Gerard Dyson, but they're probably going to use him as a fourth outfielder, pinch runner, defensive replacement in the postseason. So if, if he's not a candidate to start... Uh, you you know you need a guy to kind of hold the fort down until Gordon returns, and then you need a guy to replace Rios in the playoffs. Uh, so I think a guy like Bird, who you know could have been a cheap throw-in, uh, would have made some sense. But it sounds like uh, based on the rumor mill, they're going to be looking more for a multi-position guy who could maybe play the outfield until Gordon gets back, and then play second base and replace Omar Infante down the stretch. And at that point, obviously the the name there is Ben Zobrist. He's the guy who fits that bill the most. Um, so I wouldn't be shocked if Zobrist ended up in Kansas City. And uh, you know, if I was revising my predictions, I might move him from New York to KC at this point. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Uh, and the other what the other biggest deal to occur in, uh, included Scott Casimir. Yeah. Uh, to Houston, which I, I think we could agree is an uh, was. You know, if you look at them six months ago, an unlikely buyer at the trade deadline. Yeah, I mean, I think we looked at the Astros and thought this was a team that if a lot of things went right could get to 500, and a lot of things have gone right, and they're playing over 500. So we might have underestimated, uh, you know, how quickly a guy like Carlos Correa could not only get to the big leagues but be a good player for them. Uh, and, you know, the AL West is kind of terrible. The Angels have come on pretty strong in the second half, but, you know, a lot of teams that uh, people thought were going to be good in the preseason, Oakland and Seattle, and, you know, a lot of people were thinking Texas might bounce back for whatever reason. Uh, they've all been bad, which opened up the door for the Astros to get back in there. Right. And so the Astros are there. Is this, I mean, is this a pretty typical sort of trade uh, for the deadline, or or do you see anything sort of curious about it? 
Yeah, I mean, I think this is um, maybe a little light in terms of return. I think so. It's interesting to think about Casimir and Cueto getting traded in proximity, and Andy McCullough, who covers the Royals, uh, on Twitter noted this morning that um, an AL executive of another team, uh, when asked why the the Royals paid so much more to get Cueto uh, than the Astros paid to get Casimir, is that just Cueto's a lot better. Which, you know, he's definitely better. There's no question about that. I guess you could argue the semantics of what a lot is. And I think it's interesting if you actually look at, like, their numbers over the last couple of years since Casimir kind of got his velocity back and reappeared as a major league pitcher. They're almost exactly the same in kind of core walk, strikeout, ground ball, home run statistics. Uh, there's a huge 55-point difference in Babbitt. But as we said, you know, like some of that might be the Royals' defense or the, the Reds' defense. Some of that's definitely Cueto. He's not a league-average Babbitt guy, and he is a better pitcher. But... When you look at these two trades kind of side by side and you say, okay, the Astros gave up uh, what Kylie called a 50 future value and a 40, 50, 40 future value guy. Uh, yeah, in for, uh, what, Nottingham and uh, – Yeah, whatever the other guy's whoever name the other But Jacob Nottingham is interesting, but uh, – Yeah, but uh, I think, you know, he said very similar things about Chris Reed, who is the, kind of the third prospect in the – Cody Reed, I believe. Cody Reed, right. Yeah. Um, you know, I think he said, you know, like both guys have kind of popped up this year and raised their stock. And guys were fringe uh, prospects before the season, but are now 50 future value guys. Uh, I think you could actually break it down and say, you know, this isn't precise. This is just me spitballing. But if you said, like, Nottingham and Reed are kind of similar, and John Lamb and the second guy the Mays got are mm-hmm. not too terribly dissimilar, you'd probably prefer Lamb because he's in AAA and the other guy's in A-ball. But they're both kind of low-ceiling back-end guys. Uh, you know, maybe a little bit more stats than than stuff, and neither one looks like, you know, a front-line uh, major league player, probably role players in the big leagues. So if you say, like, those two guys are kind of equivalent, you could almost say Brandon Finnegan's the missing thing, right? Like, yeah. maybe you could look at it and say, from a thought experiment, would you trade, if you were a contender and you had Scott Casimir already, would you trade Scott Casimir and Brandon Finnegan for Johnny Cueto? I don't know. It's... Maybe. I mean, the Cueto's better, but is he Brandon Finnegan better? I mean, like, Finnegan, it depends on, you know, if you see him as a reliever, maybe you do that. And you say, whatever, I'm just giving up a guy who's going to be a bullpen arm in a few years and can't help me that much this year. But if you see Finnegan as a guy who, you know, maybe could have fit back into their bullpen down the stretch and, and helped them a little bit this year and could be a starter for them next year, uh, maybe that's too high a price to pay. And maybe the Astros got a better deal on a, you know, 90% of the pitcher for 50% of the cost basis. Right, yeah. There is that... Uh I don't know if this is a sort of bias that occurs in the mind, but there is a, ten- a tendency to produce sort of like a, you know, a taxonomy of all sorts of players. And Cueto, so you have a tendency to say, well, Cueto's really good, and Casimir, perhaps informed by you know some of the, the time he was essentially forced to sp- to sp- spend away from at least Major League Baseball because his, his arm was not working properly. Uh, he's not as good. But then when you yeah. look at it in, in practice, really the differences might not be that substantial, especially since they only have a, you know, a half season and then a handful of playoff innings to work with. Yeah, I mean, I think this is maybe the biggest difference philosophically between us as fan graphs, or at least me personally, and how a lot of maybe more uh, traditional fans or even, you know, fans who like analytics but don't necessarily agree with our roster construction ideas, uh, they look at it as really, you know, tiers of players. And I think we've heard this a lot from guys who really disagree with our stance on Cole Hamels of, like, this guy's an ace. He's clearly worth, you know, whatever, $20 million a win or whatever the Phillies fans think he's worth uh, because he's in this category of player that is, you know, not comparable to any of these other players. And so how dare you compare Scott Casimir to Johnny Cueto or, you know, like they, where you see this drastic difference because Cueto is better for sure. No one's arguing that he's as good. But 
I think if if you're a baseball team and you're actually looking at what which one you should trade for, you know, these are kind of substitutable goods, right? Like you say, okay, it's not that different from going to Whole Foods and being like, I could buy the you know wild Atlantic salmon for uh, or wild Alaskan salmon for twenty five dollars a pound, or I could buy like the frozen. Uh, you know, not quite Alaskan, but Pacific salmon for like $15 a pound. Like certainly the wild salmon is going to cost better. And, you know, maybe all I care about is maximizing my uh, dinner enjoyment tonight. And if I have tons of money, who cares? Like it's only 10 bucks. But if you are on a budget and you're uh, more concerned about being able to buy salmon again in a week or two uh, and this not being your last meal, maybe you'd rather spend a little bit less and get something that's not that different. And so I think and it's also better actually, than tilapia in theory, right? Everything is better than tilapia. Wait, you're not a tilapia. Oh, no, I don't like tilapia at all. Living in the South, that's like one of the primary fish they sell down here. Oh, really? And having relocated from Seattle where there's, you know, high quality fresh fish on every corner. Yeah. And then moving out here and they're like, hey, would you like some fried tilapia that hasn't been in the ocean for a month? It's... Not the same. All right. So you have you've had a poor experience with tilapia. Yeah, yeah. I don't like tilapia. Okay. Very good. Uh, okay. The wait. So just quickly, will you uh, will you review, please? The you re no wait. Oh wait, I had a question. The uh, you're the <laughs> perfect guy to ask. Uh, how do well? How do teams? Well, obviously, this you know, looking at the differences between the the Casimir Cueto trades, that's one way to illustrate it. How do teams generally behave? Do they generally, uh, or I mean, it's not going to be uniform, obviously, between all thirty teams. How do how do the successful teams behave when they are trading when they are uh, looking to trade for these players? Yeah, I don't think that there's actually a lot of evidence that teams pay a significant premium for kind of that upper tier t- uh, type of player. I think uh, most of the evidence shows that teams pay generally linear valuations. Not exactly. They might pay a little bit of a premium, especially the deadline to get a guy who's, you know, if, if he's 10% better, maybe they'll pay 25% more to get him. But it's close to linear. It's definitely not, uh, you know, uh, two or three times as much because this guy's you know, 20% better. Like they're, they really are looking at it and saying, I'm going to get a win if I do this. I'm going to get a win and a half if I do that. Maybe I'll pay 60% more instead of 50% more, but it's close. It's, I think teams really do look at it and say the marginal difference between players is smaller than the public sees. And I think that's why the last, you know, maybe 10 trades besides the Addison Russell, John Lester one, which is really kind of the outlier, uh, all the other trades, the public reaction has been, I don't understand why this great player only got that in return. I mean, you know, David Price last year, John, Josh Donaldson at the, um, over the offseason, like, you know, basically all of these monster trades, the public reaction has been like, what a good deal for the buyer. The sellers are idiots. And I think like at some point people are just going to have to accept that this is what the market pays for superstar players. It's not a multiple of good players. Right. Now, in terms of signing free agent deals, frequently we see the, the dollars per win compounded by usually larger commitment in terms of years. Right. Right. And and that's, I mean, perhaps that's one way in which that manifests itself. If yeah. I mean, I think so what teams will generally do is say, I have limited income in the short term, but in order to bid up on better players, I'm willing to sell, you know, maybe five, six, seven, eight years down the line and, you know, just take on a dead weight contract that I know isn't going to be a good deal. Like the Robinson Cano contract is probably a good example of this, right? Like the Mariners wanted to win. They wanted to move up their timeline. Uh, they saw Cano as maybe the best free agent on the market and said, you know, we can't afford to pay this guy $40 million a year, which is, might be what he's worth, you know, as a five win, you know, second baseman. Uh, but we can afford to pay him $24 million a year for 10 years and really kind of basically delay the, the punishment that we're going to take. And that way we can build a good team around him or theoretically. Uh, and so I think that's kind of what teams do is they say, you know, if I want a really good player, I'll take on dead money at the end of the deal rather than paying, 
kind of a fair market value uh, in terms of annual average value. I mean, like when I was doing the trade value series, I mentioned that if you buy into Mike Trout being a nine-win player, which, you know, he's on his pace for his third ten-win season in the last couple of years, so that might even be low. But if you buy into Trout as like a nine-win player and you think the market price of a win is seven or eight million dollars a year, that means Mike Trout is worth somewhere between 60 and 70 million dollars a year. Uh, and people, of course, you know, it's hard to wrap your mind around that when Clayton Kershaw and Giancarlo Stanton, these guys are signing extensions that pay them $35 million a year. Uh, but, you know, this is kind of how it works is, you know, these teams say, I'm not going to pay 60 or $70 million a year for the best player we've seen in 50 years, but maybe I'll give him, you know, a 15-year contract or something. The, it should be noted, uh, Mike Trout, I think, what with the latest update to UZR probably combined with uh, combined with a big game on Sunday, has now um, has now taken the the lead on the war leaderboard. Yeah, I don't think UZR actually had anything to do with it because UZR updates on Thursdays now. Oh, it uh, does. Not it used to update on Mondays, but now it updates on Thursdays. Uh, yeah, so I think uh, right, Trout Trout basically passed him because he hit two monster home runs yesterday, uh, and is uh, now running a 190 WRC plus. Uh, which is not quite as good as Bryce Harper's 206, but you know he also plays center field and runs the bases. So. Wow, that's uh, yeah, he's doing it, doing it again. Yeah, I saw someone on Twitter say that this is basically uh, Mike Trout's this year is basically peak Miguel Cabrera plus center field and base running, right? Like <laughs> as good as you think Miguel Cabrera was in his Triple Crown season, the you know the best right-handed hitter of whatever since Frank Thomas or something. Trout's mm-hmm. having that kind of year offensively, and then also plays defense and runs the bases. Yeah, I haven't looked at his uh, some of his counting stats. Is he is he is a, is the triple crown a possibility for him, or is it um, just a triple crown type of type of performance? Yeah, I, I don't know where he is on RBIs because I I literally don't care about RBIs at all. Yeah. Uh, but I think because he's hitting leadoff or second, he's probably not at the top of the RBI leaderboard. Would be my guess. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of batting average and RBIs, he has to be up there. Or batting average and home runs, he's got 31 homers. I think that's the best in the majors, actually. Yeah, right. Yeah, he's more than Bryce Harper at this point. He might finish with 50 home runs, and if he hits 320 or 330, um, you know, and he racks up some RBIs in the second half as much as we don't care about RBIs, he might win the Triple Crown while playing good defense in center field and, you know, being a very good base runner. And, you know, at that point, he's uh, peak Barry Bonds or, you know, something just shy of that. Yeah, uh, I I recognize this is uh, more for uh, trivia purposes than any uh, any other, but he has only four RBI off the lead uh, in the American League set by Josh Donaldson. Um, Hmm. And the batting average, uh, well, the batting average for him is always interesting, right? Because uh, he does does typically run strikeout rates slightly higher than uh, than league average, but he's also... um, there, oh, there's some high batting averages. I think uh, depending how long Miguel Cabrera, you know, Miguel Cabrera was batting 350. He was, uh, it's pretty good. Good job, Miguel Cabrera. He's, he's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, Trout's uh, Trout's 12th in the majors, and I don't know, probably you know, something half of that. Okay, so he probably won't win the triple crown, but he's having a better year than the last guy who won the triple crown. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. All right. That that, that doesn't prove anything. Um. Okay. Um. Oh yeah, the uh, the what the Juan Uribe trade goes from uh, the Dodgers. No, the, I guess the, uh, Atlanta to the, to the Mets. Yeah, this is a good pickup for the Mets. I think like uh, there's a lot of what I would consider um, unfounded calls for the Mets to make a huge splash. Like people basically are demanding that because they're the Mets and they're supposed to run a big payroll, and people have been really mad about their payroll for years. That this is some kind of like referendum on their willingness to take on money, so that you know they need to go find the most expensive player they can and take that contract just to prove something to the fan base. That's eh, silly. Uh, the Mets are you know 20% chance to make the playoffs, uh, and that's probably understating it a little bit because the Nationals are about to get all their guys back and are I still think going to run away with that division. So the Mets are 
chasing the Cubs and Giants and Pirates, uh, and maybe the Cardinals, we think they're going to fall apart for a wild card spot. And so, you know, best case scenario for the Mets realistically is that they're going to play one game against a better team on the road. Uh, they have very good pitching, so you can say, okay, fine, whatever, I'll put Jacob DeGrom or Matt Harvey or even Noah Syndergaard up against another team's ace and I'll take my chances. But their bullpen isn't good, their offense isn't good, their defense <laughs> is great. Like, this is not a great team. Uh, you're probably going to give them 40, 45% chances of winning that game on the road. Uh, you know, you really want them to give up a significant prospect and take six or seven million dollars in salary that they, um, you know, could otherwise spend on something else in terms of future value, uh, to improve their odds to 47 or 48% in that game? I don't think so. Juan Uribe and Tyler Clippard, who it sounds like they're probably going to have picked up by the time this podcast goes up. These are the kinds of trades that the Mets should be making, despite all the public protests. Okay. Uh, a question about San Diego Padres. Uh, reports indicate that they are uh, eager to do some trading. Yeah, I think they're always eager to do yeah, some Yeah, well, that's that's the question I have. So A.J. Preller... drug test A.J. Preller. He's so got to be on some kind of stimulant. A.J. Preller uh, wanting to trade at the deadline. Does that uh, does that represent... Uh, is that is that an instance of him in his, in his front office backpedaling... On their commitment, you know, the, the sort of on the guiding principles that dictated their off season, where they said we're going to acquire lots of uh, certainly, especially like offense first talent. Is it is it backpedaling on that philosophy, or is it further reinforcing the fact that AJ Preller is uh, is and probably is going to be uh, just very aggressive about trading? So I think it's mostly the latter, probably. Okay. But I think, yeah. So you know, we, I, especially on Fangraphs and uh, you know other statistically inclined places, we've given the Padres a decent amount of crap for their offseason because it was a bad one, which had a lot of destructive harm on the franchise. Uh, or destructive think, harm, Cameron. Destructive harm, as opposed to like productive harm, which uh-huh. is like the, the kind that hurts you. Right. Uh, well, productive harm is that like is that like chemotherapy? To oh yeah, it, maybe. Yeah, because it's like it, it's hurting you, but the idea is that it's killing the cancer a little bit sooner than it kills you. Right. Maybe productive harm would be harm you do to someone else. Like if you're like running in a race and you like Tanya Harding someone, then it's productive harm for you because that person's injured and you can win. All right. Yeah. So we've come, we've come up with a couple possibilities. <laughs> uh, right. So I think that it's hard to separate out how much of this plan uh, or lack of plan or whatever you want to call it is Preller and the front office versus ownership. And it seems like there was some pressure on whoever took over as GM to kind of take what was a moribund franchise that finished around 500 every year forever and was like an afterthought in baseball and make themselves relevant again, especially with the All-Star game uh, going to San Diego next year. They really decided that they were going to try and make themselves the Royals and just basically jumpstart their franchise overnight. Uh, and if the if ownership told him this is what he has to do, maybe he did the best he could in, in doing that. Uh, but at the same time, it didn't work, and now it's not clear entirely what they're trying to do at this point because rumors have them trying to trade James Shields and Craig Kimbrell and basically all these high-priced guys that they acquired over the winter, and a lot of these deals are backloaded, especially the Shields deal. If you're dumping those guys, I don't know how you win next year. And if you're not going to win next year, you should be desperately trying to trade like Matt Kemp uh, and uh, you know maybe even Will Myers, like some of these more valuable. Well, Matt Kemp is not more valuable, but you know in Myers you could maybe really restock your farm system. If you're not trying to win next year. Uh, you know, you should probably go into a full-scale rebuild. Uh, but it doesn't seem like the Padres are willing to do that. So they might still be stuck somewhere in between where they're trying to be okay in 2016 and their ownership says they're not cutting payroll, but at the same time they're trying to get rid of all their good players. Like, this is a very bizarre situation. Okay, so uh, it is a bizarre situation. Is uh, is the I don't, That's sort of option three, uh, but A.J. Preller is prepared to make trades is a fact regardless. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we can say fact, rumor, right? Like the the rumor right. mill is turning that Preller is willing to trade almost anybody, and the whole team is not nailed down. 
what they'll actually do, maybe they'll just trade the free agents. Maybe they'll trade Upton and Venable and Joaquin Benoit and just trade the guys that obviously a non-contender should trade. Uh, but if they, you know, if they trade Tyson Ross and Andrew Kashner and Karen Kimball and James Shields, that team's gonna stink next year. Okay. And finally, uh, last thing, what, what are sort of the, 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 the most likely players, who are the most likely players to move, uh, and where are they going, I suppose, over the next couple of days here? Well, Cole Hamels probably remains the most likely player to move, even though the Phillies have been the most likely guy to trade uh, Hamels for about a year now. But it seems like this time he really is uh, going somewhere. Um, and I would assume probably Texas would be my guess. Um, but it seems like Hamels is probably going to get traded in the next few days. Uh, after that, you've got kind of like the the laundry list of uh, upcoming free agents that, you know, guys like Cueto and Casimir, who doesn't really make any sense for their teams to hold on to them. Um, and so I think at that point you're looking at, like, the Adam Lins of the world and kind of not necessarily top-tier guys. Uh, David Price could be in that if the if the Tigers sell, but mostly kind of second-tier players, a lot of relief pitchers. Uh, Tyler Clippard, who's, you know, probably already going to have been traded by the time people listen to this, you know, that kind of player uh, is probably going to change hands pretty frequently. And Carlos Gomez uh, is interesting. What, what are his... Con- what does what he left have left for contract? So he's under contract for next year, which the Brewers could keep him. Um, I think at nine million dollars next year, when he's probably a twenty to twenty-five million dollar player uh, on a long-term deal. Mm-hmm. So you know, uh, no risk from not having to sign him to a five or six-year contract, plus significantly underpaid. The Brewers can ask a lot for Carlos Gomez, uh, and, and I would argue that. He might be the most valuable property on the block, period. Maybe he's worth more than Hamels, worth more than David Price, worth more than Cueto. Uh, if the Brewers trade him, they should get a lot for him. Right, because his upside is is MVP, right? Well, I don't know about that. But, I mean, you know, very good player, probably. Yeah. Like, you know, as good as people think Justin Upton is, plus under contract for another year and mm-hmm. $9 million. Like, uh, whatever people think you should give up for Justin Upton, you should give up twice that for Carlos Gomez. Right. And apparently, if you... W- Whatever people are willing to give up for Chris Bryant and Jock Peterson, that's how much they should give up for Mike Trout. Well, that's the, the, the <laughs> preview of an upcoming post. But yes, uh, I'm actually in the writing about, in assuming that we don't have deals just to overtake the week and, and push this back to next week. But at some point this week, I'm going to publish a post pondering the question of if one other, if another team had both Chris Bryant and Jock Peterson, and we take contracts completely out of this, so this isn't like the trade value question. Right, right, right. If we said equalizing contracts, uh, the Angels pay full freight or whatever they, you know, they agree to. Cancel out the money. Uh, would you rather have Mike Trout or Jock, Chris Bryant and Jock Peterson? Eh, it's not so easy an answer, I think. Wait, what was the last time the uh, the Angels appeared in the uh, divisional series? Uh, maybe three years ago. Yeah, it's it it seems almost like it would be difficult to arrange for that. Team. Oh wait, didn't they get clobbered by the uh, Orioles last year? Oh, maybe that was it. I don't yeah. know. I yeah, don't, I obviously, I don't remember. Left. I don't. I've stopped using my memory. I've outsourced yeah. it to the internet. Mike Trout finally won an MVP because his team made the playoffs. Ray BBWA. Right. Yeah. All right. I think you're done. Okay. Uh, at that note, you're throwing me away. Yeah, you're done. Wait, well, I want to get the part of you saying, "What was the thing?" Oh, you, I want to. I want to get the compl- your complaints about tilapia in the middle. I'm going to make sure to go back and find those. Yeah, they're just not very good. It's it's a bad fish. Do you really think? What if? You, what about if you had fresh tilapia? No, I've had fresh tilapia. It's just not a, it's, tilapia is a bottom feeder that tastes like nothing, so you have to like either fry it or soak it in something that has flavor. Yeah, put it, put a bunch of garlic in, on it. Okay, but then you're just eating garlic. You might as well just have the garlic. It's a lot cheaper. Right, but you're having it on something that, that has, that contains protein. Okay, that's fine. Buy some canned tuna and throw some garlic in there. Ugh, does, does garlic t- taste good with tuna? 
I've, I've never actually thrown garlic in my canned tuna, but I do like canned tuna. I would rather have canned tuna. Yeah, isn't tuna the advantage of tilapia that it tastes like nothing? Isn't that one of the advantages? I don't like paying for things that taste like nothing. Well, you don't like tofu either, probably. Right, right exactly. These okay. these like flavorless uh, fillers. I don't like paying a lot of money for them. Yeah, but it's nice. It's a it's a protein with some substance, and then it just takes on whatever sauce you put on it. it takes on that flavor. Some yeah. people like I, that. I would rather have a protein that tastes like something. Yeah. All right. Hey, well, we are at loggerheads over this. <laughs> but let's okay. uh, let's say that your let's say that your your obligation uh, has been fulfilled. Hooray, hooray. Let's say that. Uh, that has been... Uh, thank you, Dave Cameron, I'll say first. You're welcome, Carson Sestouli. Yeah, that has been Dave Cameron, uh, managing editor of Fangraphs.com. Carson Sestouli, this has been Fangraphs Audio.